This week, the Comics Guys explain Summer Event Comics, Part 1. Hello, thank you, Ben. Welcome, everyone. Uh, so this is the first in a uh, several-part series uh, where we are going to uh, go through the history of the Summer Event comic, uh, starting with the very first ones and bringing us all the way up to current. Um, I say several part because we're not really sure just how long this is going to take because there's a bunch of them. Let us know if you like this and you want us to keep going with it uh, because, you know, uh, we don't do a lot of long, long series. I think our longest one uh, prior to this is uh, three-ish or three, I said, it was about to say issues. No, fine, issues. Oh, uh, five. Five is the longest one we've ever five? done. Yeah. Wait, which the one's history, the five? His, history of DC. Oh, you're right. DC. I was thinking Marvel was. You're right. Marvel was like four. Right? Marvel was like four. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was thinking of uh, the Summers one um, being three. That was also four. Yeah. That was four. That was oh, four. Man. Wow. Right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, I have no idea how long things take, but this will probably be our longest one. It uh, could be. Would be my guess if we do it uh, all the way through. So let us know what you think about it. Um, so Darren. Um, where do we start with the summer event? Right. So we want to talk about summer events because obviously they have become an enormous driver of, you know, like the, the financial side of, uh, superhero comics, but they have also, uh, generally been very important as far as kind of, you know, like story and continuity and that sort of thing, big events. Uh, you know, we've kind of like taught the, uh, taught the audience to expect these. Um, and they've kind of, you know, really almost like deformed to the way that like comics are, are read and published, right? Like this is, uh, you know, uh, not the style that was done uh, up into the 80s or 90s, basically, when you would expect for uh, most titles to have like long consecutive monthly runs. Um, so the idea of the big summer crossover event uh, comes from Marvel's first ever limited series. DC invented the idea of a limited series uh, with a World of Krypton was actually the first one um, back in 1979, where they like put out a comic that came out monthly that from the beginning they knew was only going to go a set number of issues. And that had never been done before. That's, nobody had ever said, we're going to do six of these and stop, right, sort of thing. Um, but DC did a couple more, if, you know, like in, the, in the, the year or two after World of Krypton. These were quite successful. Um, and the uh, creative staff really liked them because they liked the idea of being able to basically do like a complete story, uh, you know, with a beginning, middle and end and like actually get out and not have to worry about month to month continuity and that sort of thing. So Marvel first started to take a look at doing this uh, right around the same time that DC was doing World of Krypton, but for various reasons we're about to discuss, it got held up. And this was a series that was called Contest of Champions. And Contest of Champions was originally scheduled to come out in late 1979 to coincide with the 1980 Olympics, right? Like the, the, they thought the Olympics was gonna be like a big deal and that it would be cool to do kind of like this limited series that would kind of like have all of these different characters from the Marvel Universe in it and introduce a bunch of new characters from countries that had not been represented by superheroes before, right? Like it would be a cool idea to just kind of like expand the universe and introduce like six or eight new characters and have a competition between them. And it would just be kind of like spoofing the existence of the Olympics and that sort of thing. Um, wow. Obviously, the 1980 Olympics, uh, the U.S. actually boycotted. 
and so uh, they did, Marvel decided that, uh, you know, kind of like tying this to the Olympics was a terrible idea uh, and basically kind of like delayed and rewrote the uh, mm-hmm. series. And so it didn't come out until 1982. Uh, cover date March 82 for the first issue of it. So it would have, uh, uh, you know, kind of like been out basically throughout the summer of, of uh, 1982. Um, it was written then kind of like conceived by Mark Gruenwald. If you, if you know Mark Gruenwald's style, this will not surprise you at all that this was the sort of thing that he came up with. Um, and he had writing assistance on it from uh, both Bill Mantlow and Alan Grant um, and had art by uh, John Romita Jr. Um, and so this three issue limited series uh, is uh, the collector had died over the course of a story taking place in the Avengers and Grandmaster, another one of the elders of the universe, decides to play a game. He's the he's the 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 elder who's all about playing games and he decides to challenge uh, death itself for the right to bring his brother back to life. And so uh, he uh, holds like this kind of like kind of basically forces the Marvel superheroes to go through a competition so that the Grandmaster and Death can kind of like choose their teams, uh, basically, of superheroes to then fight against each other. And so as part of this, you know, kind of like bringing the heroes together and putting them through these trials, we meet all of these other uh, you know, superheroes from other countries. We meet Talisman from Australia. We meet Shamrock from Ireland. We meet Blitzkrieg from Germany. We meet Defensor from, you know, South America. I think he's from Argentina or something, um, right? These are all these kind of like new characters. As you can kind of like tell just from the names, these are some pretty, you know, like hefty uh, uh, national stereotypes uh, for some of these that we're kind of uh, uh, playing on. It's not the greatest, uh, you know, kind of like actual representation of a, of a uh, you know, of a foreign culture. Uh, but, you know, the comics at that point were not very good at any of those, right? So it's, uh, it's certainly probably no worse than other stuff that is going on at the same time. Um, so they have this adventure, uh, Death and Grandmaster, uh, you know, choose teams. The teams are forced to fight each other or die. Uh, the Grandmaster's team wins through some shenanigans and the Collector is brought back to life. The end, the heroes are returned back to Earth. The end, right? It's not that big a story. It was mostly an excuse to get all of these different characters into one big comic. Um, it was, a you know, uh, uh, like crisis and other things that came after it like part of the appeal was that you had just never seen this many characters in a team up before right here's an entire you know like entire panels that were just packed to the gills with with uh, with with characters the other thing that it did was kind of like served not only did it serve as a preview for what summer crossovers were going to look like it also was kind of like a preview for the official handbook of the marvel universe which would come out about a year or two after this uh also by mark gruenwald um each issue of contest of champions when it came out has started and then continued a list of every living superhero in the marvel universe right just like like a text piece basically uh saying mm-hmm. you know like uh, like one line basically about who everybody was so that you would not uh you know if you picked up a comic and uh, an issue of this and thought the character looked cool you'd know where to find them right like uh you know it's supposed to like be here's your chance to meet the characters from alpha flight 
uh, or you know, like some other comic that you weren't following or whatever, and you're like, wow, that character looks cool. I want to go, uh, you know, like read more about them. It would tell you. And so that was kind of like that uh, process of actually like listing every existing character. Uh, was what kind of drove Gruenwald, uh, you know, and, and kind of like put the, the 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 impetus behind creating the official handbook, um, which, as I've said in a couple of other places, is literally the most Bronze Age thing that ever happened, right? So, um, it's also now the um, uh, the the idea that Marvel Contest of Champions is used for a mobile fighting game. Exactly. Um, yes. The entire setup of it is it's probably they, and they the, even recycle the name. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's the same plot basically, um, right. but yeah, it's got some. I, I played it for a that little. That happened, while. you know, thirty whatever years later, right? Like that that game yeah. is from like twenty fifteen or something. So. Uh yeah, yeah absolutely. So anyway, so that's the first test, right? Like that wasn't you know they they weren't really necessarily intending. Uh, to begin a series, but it's really the first big summer crossover, and it's one that like kind of got forgotten in the list, right? Like, if you ask people what the first big summer crossover is, they'll all say Secret Wars. Like, Mm -hmm. Secret Wars actually had, you know, things that influenced it, too, and the biggest influence on Secret Wars was Contest of Champions. Uh, Secret Wars is kind of the the next one we'll talk about, and this ran for an entire year, from May 1984 to April 1985. And the deal with Secret Wars was that... uh, Marvel had just signed a contract with Mattel to do a toy line featuring Marvel superheroes, right? Not the first time that, you know, comics had the comic company had a a deal to make toys of their characters, but this was the latest one, right? uh, Mattel was going to turn out all of these, you know, like action figures, basically, of all of the superheroes. And Mattel went to Marvel and said, in as part of our deal, Right. Like we would very much like this contract to include that you have to do a big publishing event in the comics to promote the toys. Right. The toys are actually, we think, going to be a much bigger financial deal than the comics are. So like you should be the ones like it should be on your side, basically, to like produce advertising and marketing for us by generating like a a, a comic that we could use, you know, along with the, the, the toys. Right. Like that the toys would come from would be the premise of. And so Jim Shooter and Tom DeFalco and Matt, uh, Mark Grunewald again, like sit down and get together uh, about like what they're going to do for this promotional comic. And of course, Grunewald's got a million big ideas about what he wants to do. Um, and as the three of them are discussing it, the project just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Right. And Jim Shooter is relatively new to being the uh, editor in chief, and he kind of wants to make a big splash. If you go back and listen to our history of Marvel, uh, you know, Shooter's kind of like relationship with his staff is, uh, is shall we say, contentious. Um, and Shooter had certainly heard uh, at this point about the early rumors about what DC was planning to do with the crisis. And, uh, you know, the, the, was aware of, like, DC's, you know, like, plans and that sort of thing. We'll talk about what those were at this point, uh, because they beat Crisis to Market, so uh, Secret Wars was, was definitely the first. But he was certainly aware that, like, his biggest competition was also planning a big line-spanning event comic book uh, that would be separate from their regular monthly titles. And so, you know, he was perfectly willing and, uh, you know, wanted to kind of, like, take advantage of the uh, advertising and marketing that Mattel would be doing for its own toys. 
right? Like in theory, this should be a reciprocal relationship. The fact that Mattel is advertising its toys should sell more comics, right? So, you know, uh, let, let, let's work together at this. So uh, most of the plot ideas uh, that the three of them wound up putting into the comic came from Mattel requests, right? Like when they talked to Mattel about what they wanted as a promotional comic, Mattel said, okay, uh, we have some basic things that you need to have. Uh, it needs to have playsets, right? There needs to be locations that are new and unusual and interesting where kids can stage fights between the heroes and the villains and everything. So whatever you're doing in the story, send them to places that we can turn into forts and playsets and that sort of thing. Um, the uh, uh, heroes and villains should definitely be fighting each other. We're going to have a group of heroes as part of the toys and a group of villains as part of the toys. But also it would be really cool. Like Kids love it when heroes fight heroes, right? They always want to argue over who's stronger. They want to see Thor fight the Hulk and whatever. So like, please include in your plot here somewhere some scenes where the heroes have to fight each other. Because that's just cool, right? Um, mm -hmm. So some of these were like these really just kind of like basic plot ideas. And then some of them were really specific, right? Uh, we're designing versions, new versions of Doctor Doom and Iron Man. And we don't like either of their armor sets. So can you please like, uh, you know, like make some adjustments in their armor as part of these stories? Have them look a little different? Because they're really hard to make toys out of. You know, we want to make easier, uh, you know, versions of toys out of. So can you kind of like simplify and change the way these, uh, you know, these these characters look, uh, you know, as, as part of the plot? OK, sure, we'll do that. So, you know, with this kind of like laundry list of like, you know, specific things that had to happen in the comic, uh, Shooter and DeFalco and Gruenwald and Mike Zek, uh, you know, sat down and created Secret Wars. They originally weren't going to call it Secret Wars. Um, the original title of the series was going to be called Cosmic Champions as a reference back to uh, the Contest of Champions, right? Because the last time they did a big crossover thing, they had used that title, Champions, in it. Um, and in fact, the first ever reference, the first ever preview of Secret Wars was in a Mar Marvel Age comic almost like a year before it came out, in which they call it Cosmic Camp uh, Champions, right? That's they they didn't ha even have the name yet. Communication. Uh, Mattel requested them to change the name of the comic because Cosmic Champions did not test well with their uh, with their kid focus groups. They thought of the the kids thought it was a terrible uh, uh, title basically, and so Mattel asked a bunch of eight year olds what kind of words should be in the title, and Secret and Wars both scored really well. So based on the opinions of a bunch of eight-year-olds, Marvel changed the name of its comic to Secret Wars. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, they went ahead with this. It was the, you know, the first, it was a year-long title that was going to connect into uh, all of the titles, all the major titles that they were running and feature all of the heroes, certainly all the ones that were important enough to be part of the toy line. Right. Like uh, Alpha Flight doesn't get into, uh, you know, Secret Wars because they just weren't apparently cool enough to have like a line or anything. Right. Cloak and Dagger, other characters that were kind of like these second and third tier characters uh, had nothing to do with Secret Wars. Also, all the Avengers that like the second tier Avengers, right, like they wanted only the important famous Avengers. They didn't want the vision. Right. And they didn't want. uh I don't know, uh, Black Widow or something like that, right? Like second tier characters at the time who were not uh, popular, were not uh, part of the toy line and therefore aren't part of the story. So in 
you know, issues actually started in May 1984. Basically, we have all of these superheroes discover uh, the existence of like a weird alien building ship kind of thing in Central Park. And when they go to explore it, they get teleported away. Like everybody's comic had that event like at the end of the comic. And then either the same issue or the next issue, they were returned having spent some number of months in space as like part of this thing without giving away. But like basically they the the events of the series were previewed, you know, in that the, those those first couple of months, right? Like the the issue that they all left or the issue where they all came back, right? You knew in advance what some of the plot events of Secret Wars were going to be. You saw Spider-Man's black costume, right? Like the first time that you see it is well before he gets it in the series. Uh, you saw that the She-Hulk was replacing the thing in Fantastic Four, right? There was no explanation of why yet. So like you had to go read Secret Wars to find out what these new events, you know, like how they came about, right? So it was a great way to kind of like feed interest in. They showed all of these previews of what was happening because we showed you the end first, right? And then, you know, never explained to you what happened so that you had to then go read a monthly comic for an entire year to like find out what all of these events are, right? Um, there are like weird versions of the characters who like wind up happening in this, right? Like Sue is pregnant in the story and Mattel actually did want her to be in the series, but uh, John Byrne was, you know, writing fantastic four at that point and was just like, I'm not making her not pregnant, right? Like this is not a thing. Do you want to make a toy of a pregnant woman? And Mattel finally kind of like backed off and said, okay, we see probably we shouldn't do that. Um, and then uh, at the time, Tony Stark was not Iron Man. Right? Uh, Rhodey was actually uh, wearing the, the Iron Man suit and Mattel didn't care because they were never going to show who was inside the armor in their toys anyway. So like who's inside Iron Man's armor completely made no difference to them. Uh, so the comic includes Rhodey as Iron Man, not to not uh, not Tony. Um, the X-Men who show up once again, they need to be the most popular X-Men, right? Cyclops shows up, even though he's not even on the team at that point. Uh, he gets like snatched, uh, you know, in story. Chris Claremont explains that he got like uh, uh, kidnapped out of the middle of his honeymoon uh, with Madeline Pryor uh, in order to show up for Secret Wars, basically. And it's the first time he's seen his teammates in weeks, basically. Um, also, uh, Professor X in the story is returned to his wheelchair apparently by the, uh, the the actions of the Beyonder who thought it was more appropriate for him to be there because that was the, the, the toy version of Professor X was going to be in his wheelchair, even though in X-Men comics at the time he was walking around. Dr. Doom, what's that? Uh, Recripples you. It's better for toys. It is. Yeah, it's better for the toy. Right, exactly. Yeah. So enjoy that. Uh, Dr. Doom is present, even though he's actually dead at this point. Um, which is a plot hole that hilariously doesn't get explained until the next year in Secret Wars 2, right? <laughs> like, it's they just kind of like, it's, you know, he's here and we're not going to explain why and come back next year to find out the, uh, you know, like the actual like end of this twist, basically, of uh, where it's revealed that uh, uh, the Beyonder in Secret Wars 2 has to send Doctor Doom back in, or like grab Doctor Doom out of time uh, before his death and put him in Secret Wars and then you know, more time travel shenanigans happen. Um, both Ultron, uh, Ultron had been destroyed and the lizard had been cured, but Beyonder like returns them to their previous state because once again, that's what they want for the toys. 
the you know kind of like Blizzard being one of the most popular characters at Marvel is just weird to me. But he's, I guess he's, I guess, he is popular, and uh, you know he's easy to make a toy of, right? Like so, he looks cool. Uh, he's got a great so visual, he, right? So how many how many uh, Marvel bad guys have a tail, right? Like that's just awesome. That's true. So here's the, so the plot is very basic, right? Like you have one spaceship full of heroes and one spaceship full of villains, and the Beyonder says uh, shows up. The Beyonder is this super cosmic being. He's basically God. Like we have no idea what where he comes from or what you know he can do, but he literally seems to be able to do anything. And he says, "I am trying to study. I'm trying to learn the difference between good and evil. Uh, so I'm going to send you both to a planet that I have made in outer space." And you two should fight, and whichever of you is stronger, either good is stronger or evil is stronger, whichever side wins, I will grant their fondest wish. Those are all like, this is ridiculous. We should try to like figure some plan. We need to contact the, uh, you know, contact the the Beyonder. We need to, you know, like figure out how to get home, etc. And the villains are all like, our fondest wish, awesome. Let's go kick the crap out of the superheroes, right? <laughs> so you know, as a group, they basically kind of, you know, like start all of the violence basically by, uh, you know, by by charging in. Um, of course, the villains group includes both Doctor Doom, who's too smart to fall for this, and Galactus who very quickly kind of like realizes the Beyonder is somebody who is potentially cosmically powerful enough to cure him of his hunger, right? And so he goes to like, rather he just ignores everything that's happening with the human heroes and he goes to attack the Beyonder on his own uh, to force him to uh, free Galactus of his hunger. And then Galactus gets the snot kicked out of him in like literally at the end of the first issue. Right? so if you were wondering exactly how powerful this Beyonder guy is, they will just demonstrate by like, you know, just cold cocking Galactus in no time, right? Like one punch, basically, and it's over. Uh, and the other kind of like interesting uh, plot twist is Magneto is among the heroes, right? Which is kind of like the beginning at this point, like Magneto has not really done his face turn in the comics yet. It's kind of like a lead in to Claremont uh, having, you know, Magneto kind of like reform himself because it's always, you know, it's, it's, it's in Magneto's portrayal at this point that everything he's doing is for the benefit of others. It's just for the benefit of mutants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that he's actually, you know, somebody like protecting his race, right? Like, it's, you know, the Magneto was right t-shirts have not come out yet, but this is kind of like the first, uh, the first portrayal of Magneto as a misunderstood hero as opposed to a villain, right? And so like the X-Men are kind of like, yeah, we, you know, we we can kind of see this. We are, we're going to protect you on our side. And then the rest of the superheroes are like, the X-Men are hanging out with Magneto. They must also be villains too, right? So there's a bunch of uh, fights between them, right? As like the Avengers and Fantastic Four are mad that Mag- the, the X-Men are letting Magneto hang out with them, right? So like there's a bunch of foolishness that goes on there. Um, over the course of 12 issues, like I said, we have Spider-Man gets his new costume. Uh, several new characters get introduced. The new Spider-Woman plus uh, Titania and Vulcana um, kind of like are, are created by Doctor Doom, basically. Um, Colossus realizes he's no longer in love with Kitty. He like meets an alien girl on the planet and like completely falls in love with her. And even though that relationship doesn't actually work out, he kind of like realizes that like if I was capable of falling in love with this alien girl, I must not really be in love with Kitty. So like that relationship basically comes to an end. Um, so there's a bunch of like little events basically uh, that happen over the course of it that are not world changing, but they are you know kind of like continuity. They're they're 
reasons that you would want to pick this up, right? Uh, over the course of the story, uh, Dr. Doom manages to temporarily steal the powers of the Beyonder. It turns out the Beyonder just let him do it to see what he'd do with them. Um, and so Dr. Doom temporarily becomes God, but then uh, he kills all of the heroes, but then uh, realizes that like he also has the ability to bring them back with a thought, and then he can't thinking stop thinking about it. So like he accidentally brings all the heroes back to life. And, uh, you know, Captain America, uh, you know, gets his shield torn up and everything. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the first times you ever see the, the uh, Cap's shield broken, right? Um, it's kind of like a big dramatic event when it happens. Um, but in the end, they manage to defeat Doctor Doom. The heroes win and, you know, they manage to get themselves returned back to Earth safely with most of the villains. Uh, the Thing decides... He discovers that on this weird alien world, he can control his change into the thing so he can look like a human or look like the thing. Uh, and he decides that he's going to stay here until he figures out why that is uh, and doesn't want to go back to Earth at that point. So uh, he gets She-Hulk to replace him in the Fantastic Four for a while. This is the beginning of John Byrne uh, working with She-Hulk as a character because he just wanted to have her because he thought she was hilarious. So, uh, And, uh, you know, Every, everybody is, uh, you know, returned to largely status quo and the universe goes on. Uh, the toy line is kind of a disappointment for Mattel. It doesn't sell anywhere near as well as they thought it was going to. They, uh, you know, they make some money off of it, obviously. Um, you know, toy sales are obviously, you know, uh, work on a completely different scale, you know, than comic book sales do. Uh, so Mattel's not that you know thrilled with it. They're not they're not mad, but they're also not planning to kind of like renew it or anything. On the other hand, the comic book Secret Wars itself becomes literally the best selling comic since the late 1950s in issues. In 25 years, it's the best selling comic, uh, you know, like uh, uh, historically, right? Like you have to go all the way back to the 50s in a completely different marketplace to see comics that were selling as many copies as Secret Wars did. Secret Wars is not just a smash hit, it's a blow things out the door hit, right? And following up on the Marvel licensing of Star Wars, this has turned Marvel into, uh, you know, from being a just barely one step ahead of the creditors, you know, in bankruptcy company to an enormously financially successful you know like company and of course this uh the success of uh secret wars since jim shooter was the lead scripter on it this cements in his head that he is clearly the smartest guy in comics right there is no telling him he's wrong about anything else after this because he can always turn around and say i wrote the best-selling comic book ever you know or effectively ever certainly the best-selling comic book in 25 years what have you done Right? That's his that's his end to every argument that he will have with anybody at Marvel for the next two or three years until he finally gets his ass fired uh, for being an enormous pain in the butt. Yeah, we'll um, see what that gets with uh, Secret Wars 2 uh, probably next episode. Exactly, right. But, well, this is, yeah, the other thing that the success of Secret Wars does is it guarantees there will be another one, right? So uh, in our next episode, we will talk about Secret Wars 2, but we've got another one to get through before we can do that. Um, Let's go back to, you know, uh, 1983 or so. Uh, actually 1982 or so, and see where DC is at this point. And DC, uh, two of its uh, biggest stars, its biggest writers, are uh, Marv Wolfman and Len Wein. And George Perez, Wolfman and Perez, have just created the extremely uh, strong-selling Teen Titans, the new Teen Titans comic. 
by Wolfman and Perez. It's a hit. It's DC's biggest title, etc. It's you know they are definitely the 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 royalty of the you know DC offices, and still Wolfman and Perez are are kind of disappointed, right? Because like DC's best selling comic is still would have been Marvel's like eighth best selling comic. Right. Like, I mean, like, why, why does Marvel have so many titles that are outselling Teen Titans? Right. Like, what's the problem? We're, how do we get a title that can actually keep up with the biggest Marvel things, with the Avengers, with the X-Men, with the Spider-Man? Right. Like, are, are those, all those titles are outselling Teen Titans, even though Teen Titans is the number one DC thing. And they have many discussions among the three of them, you know, who are uh, Ween and Wolfman have been friends since they were kids and Perez has, you know, become close to them. And they wonder whether or not part of the problem, the reason that DC can never really get that popular is because DC continuity is so complicated. Right? Is it harder to get new readers in and everything because we have these series that are taking place on Earth 2 and Earth S and Earth 1 and all of the you know different stuff? The continuity is such a tangled mess going all the way back to the 30s or whatever. Like Marvel doesn't have to deal with that, right? Like Marvel's always had just one universe and it's only been around for 20 whatever years and it's still relatively clean looking, whereas DC's is this complicated mess of parallel Earths and weird stuff. Is that the reason that we can't get a, a real foothold, right? Like, would things sell better if we if we made the DC universe simpler to understand? And so they make a pitch to DC. Well, the original pitch actually came in 1981, and it's not like fully like this. Uh, but the they they modify the pitch that they had made, which was called the history of the DC universe. And in this series, they would like retell the story of Earth in the DC universe and get rid of all the parallel Earths. They would just rewrite it from scratch. And uh, when they kind of like make this pitch to uh, Jeanette Kahn and Paul Levitz and Dick Giordano, who they're basically collectively the three bosses running DC, they're like, well, you can't just wave your hand like that, right? Like, a, you know, D our fans would be upset. You can't just eliminate World Earth 2 or, you know, Earth S or anything uh, without saying why and how it got done, right? Like, maybe it could be the result of a story, but you can't just do it arbitrarily. So that turned, that pitch meeting kind of turned into a discussion of uh, a series that would be like a big summer crossover event kind of thing. It would be a limited series, the point of which would be to simplify the DC universe. They start doing research to put this together. Wolfman and Ween actually get permission to hire an assistant whose full-time job is literally to read every DC comic ever made up to that point. <laughs> right? That's his, that's his day job is go in and read that's everything awesome. that's ever been done. It takes him two years to do it. Wow. Right. During that time, they are, you know, like kind of setting up the rest of this. They're talking about all the other things that they're going to do. And uh, Jeanette Khan finally comes to them and says, look, you're, you're not even going to make, you know, we had thought we were going to get this out in 84. We had thought we were going to get this out before Secret Wars. Right. Like they didn't they, they had also heard rumors about Secret Wars, but they were like, you know what, we are going to wait. We're not going to put this out until 1985 because that will be DC's 50th anniversary as a company. And we'll make a big 50th anniversary event about it. And conveniently, that will be after Secret Wars and we'll have seen how Secret Wars does. 
right? We'll have an idea whether this is a plausible thing at, at all. And if we have to, if Secret Wars bombs, then we can kind of like, we've still got a few months to shift and kind of like change our, you know, our, our plans on what we're doing, right? So the problem with that, of course, is because it took so long and there were so many rumors and so much stuff uh, happening and delays that were happening, the marketing actually was really pretty poor for Crisis compared to Secret Wars. Secret Wars was marketed fabulously. Uh, Mattel put in a bunch of money. There were TV ads and all kind of other stuff that was going on. DC didn't have any of that for Crisis. Um, so when Crisis actually hits, when it actually like dropped, and we'll talk about like you know how how it was put together, but when it actually drops, it's a surprise hit, right? Because now Secret Wars has kind of established the model, and it's like, oh, this is now DC's version of Secret Wars, and it's even better. It's a better story. It's got better art. Look, it's got George Perez art instead of Mike Zeck art, right? Like this is amazing, you know. And so, the fact that Crisis like blew the doors off for DC was an enormous surprise to anybody and it had the same kind of effect financially on dc that the combination of like star wars and secret wars had done for marvel right like it, it it it's a bit of a stretch to say that it saved the company but it's not that big of a stretch right like it certainly improved the the the, the company so the premise of crisis is there is this horrible villain uh, there's there's a villain and an and a and a, a hero and a villain who are two sides of the same being the monitor and the anti monitor, and the monitor is a good guy who's been living in our universe for a while, uh, or he lives in all the multiverses basically for a while, and he kind of like keeps an eye on all of the, uh, the the different versions of Earth and everything out there, and the anti monitor is from like the the antimatter universe, the 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 negative energy universe, and he just wants to destroy all of our universes. And so he begins the process by kind of like sweeping through and just wiping out entire timelines and entire histories, entire alternate planets. And so the first one we see him destroy in the very first issue is Earth-3, which is the home of the evil Justice League, right? It's the evil opposite planet where the Justice League are all bad guys and Lex Luthor is a superhero. It's a planet that has existed in DC continuity for 20 something years. And we have very definitely established that the evil Justice League on this planet is super talented, right? They're super powerful. They they are just as good as our heroes, and we see them fail and die in the first issue. So now we have like set a level of stakes, right? Like Ultraman and Owlman and and Johnny Quick and Power Ring and all these dudes, right? They're that universe's version of Superman and Batman and Green Lantern and the Flash. If they can't stop this, how can ours, right? Like you've you've done a fabulous job of just like setting up uh the uh the you know the the death and the stakes that we're talking about like we literally destroyed an entire universe on like the first eight pages of the comic um so the heroes discover the existence of this terrible threat the the monitor is kind of like trying to manipulate them all into like forming different teams and then he gets killed uh and the heroes have to kind of like carry on by themselves without him um the outcomes of the story basically uh in order the 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 last five remaining earths our Earth, Earth 2, Earth S, Earth X, and Earth 4. Earth 4 being the newly introduced one that has all of the uh, Charlton characters on it, the characters that DC just acquired the rights to, uh, are the last five Earths that have not been destroyed by the Anti-Monitor. And our heroes and the Monitor find a way to kind of like squish those five into one Earth, into one timeline, to make it kind of more powerful. 
and more resistant to the things that the, the anti-monitor is doing. So those five universes basically get combined and events from each of their different histories all go into the new version, the new history of that Earth. So continuity is completely thrown out the window. All kinds of things are being changed. Uh, and there are big dramatic events, right? Like Secret Wars, what, you know, like what's the biggest thing that happens? Spider-Man gets a new costume, right? In Crisis, the Flash dies, Supergirl dies, Wonder Woman basically dies, uh, dozens of minor characters get killed, enormous swaths of parallel Earths are killed, like literally it has a death count in the trillions, right? Like over the course of the series, uh, every team loses a member or something like that, right? Like Cole dies, Dove dies, Lori Lamaris, Superman's old girlfriend dies. Um, a bunch of the Earth 2 characters are basically they don't die so much as they're just uncreated, right? Like they never existed in the first place in the new history. So there's never an Earth 2 Robin or an Earth 2 Superman or Earth 2 Batman, etc. Earth 2 Superman does in fact actually survive um, and just like leaves our universe entirely uh, along with uh, Lois Lane and the Superboy from Earth Prime, which will all be problems that will come back later for DC. But nevertheless, at the at the time, they are just kind of like a fond farewell to the first superhero. Goodbye. And now we have the new characters and this is basically the excuse for reboots of all of the major characters right like the new there's a new history now for all of these characters john byrne gets to come in and take over superman with all of his demands about like the way superman should be there was never a superboy there's never a supergirl there was never a you know superboy never joined the legion of superheroes superman is the only guy from uh, Krypton to survive. I want him to be unique in that situation. So we get a complete reboot of Superman done by Byrne. George Perez gets to do a complete reboot of Wonder Woman, who now never existed in the past. She's now a brand new character de debuting in 1986. And all of her back history is like completely different. Batman doesn't change, but the uh, existence of the series is an excuse to do year one by Frank Miller anyway, right? Like, which has very little actual change in Batman, but it is, you know, a uh, a completely new kind of like way of presenting the character, right? So like in this, you know, this is just a, a, a massive line sweeping, you know, like set of changes that is critically very well received. Everybody's kind of happy with it. Nobody's noticed the problems that they have just created really yet. And uh, DC's delighted with how it comes. And so now they have every intention of uh, doing more of these as long as the market will stand it. So now both DC and Marvel are very motivated to keep going with this because they have both just like rolling in cash. And keep going, they will. They keep going, they absolutely will, to, for, for good and ill. Yep. Uh, and we'll get to some of the ill and some more of the good uh, next time. Absolutely. Uh, we talk about Secret Wars too. Um, so thank you all for joining us. I've been Steve Tasker. And I'm Darren Watts. Have a good night. Thanks for coming.